The other good conversation was the one I had with Martin Brundle, where Martin said, well, how do you want me to do this? Uh, how hard do you want me to press? And I said, well, Martin, I don't want the car coming back looking like that. And I pointed to the car, which was shiny and absolutely new. I said, I'm perfectly happy with a bit of battle damage. There's quite a, a dialogue that goes on a lot of the time about a restoration. What do you keep? What do you change? I certainly think a race car should look like a race car. That's Nick Mason, the Pink Floyd drummer who just so happens to have one of the biggest private car collections in the world. I'm Alex Goy and this is Audi, Behind the Rings. Nick Mason is one of the greatest drummers of all time. With Pink Floyd, he made 15 studio albums, the band's total record sales exceeding 250 million. You may well be a huge fan of The Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall, but given you're listening to this podcast, I'd hazard a guess that you might know Nick better as the man who owns over 50 cars. And we're talking serious supercars. The mind truly boggles. He buys them, he fettles them, and in between playing gigs, he even raced them. Nick's motor collection is a thing of legend, I suspect kept in an epic bunker somewhere. I called up the Audi ambassador to chat about racing at Le Mans, driving an auto union at Goodwood, and how you accidentally end up as a car collector. Hello, hello Nick Mason. Welcome to the podcast. So you are obviously known for your love of music and for cars. Uh, which came first? Which, uh, which got you started? Well, I'd have to say cars uh, for two reasons. One, because uh, it all came from my father. Uh, but secondly, because they hadn't actually bothered to invent rock and roll when I was a small boy. I had to wait until I was, well, at least 10 or 12, I guess. Born in 1944, so that's a note for my birthday present, by the way. The whole music thing really was something that came up, I guess, in the early 50s, long after I'd started going Silverstone. So yeah, you, you, uh, you say your, your father got you into cars. How, how did that happen? Because a, a lot of people have their kind of link with their dad. What was, the, what was the connection there? Oh, well, it was quite a strong one. The big thing really was that my father, Bill Mason, worked for Shell in their film unit. He was the director of these films that were made that were documentaries on Shell and what Shell were doing. And they were mainly made for sort of educational purposes. They weren't really product selling at all. And he made films on motor racing, aeroplanes, and the way that oil was extracted, that sort of thing. And of course, particularly motorsport. So he made a film of uh, Le Mans in, I think, 53 and Amelia Amelia, uh, and eventually went on to make a whole series of films on the history of motor racing. And he used to race a vintage Bentley himself. So I was taken to Silverstone from, I don't know, I must have been sort of six, seven years old, I guess. So that's where it all started. Is there a moment you can remember something clicking, going, I like this, this is fun, I like, was it a smell or a sight or a sound? Uh, I think it was more than that. I think it was the ultimate treat. It was my day out with my dad and we'd leave London at about six in the morning. We'd stop and pick up a man called Wally Saunders. Wally was um, the guy who looked after the Bentley and had actually been one of the Bentley riding mechanics and the team mechanics in period, in the 30s. And we would then drive up Silverstone, 
which was all straw bales and not much else, and unload the car because, of course, the big thing was uh, to save <laughs> taking weight off a vintage Bentley may seem a rather sort of pathetic thing to do, but we'd get spare tires, the hood, uh, the big screen would come off and the aero screens be fitted and so on. And it was, for me, the ultimate day out. It must have been pretty spectacular. So your, your old man was racing a Bentley. Who, who was he racing with? Who was he racing against? Well, it's interesting looking at it now because a typical meeting would be at the Bentley Drivers Club. And basically, it was all Bentleys. I mean, they would actually have sprints in the morning and then races in the afternoon. And they would have full grids of just four and a half Bentleys or just three-litre Bentleys or whatever. And there'd maybe be a couple of other races for all comers. That sounds quite, in- it sounds quite intense. Having, having not been there myself, it sort of reminds me of one of the races you get at Revival. Well, it was very like that. You have to remember that in the, I guess we're talking sort of early, mid-50s, this was the cheap form of motorsport was vintage racing. You know, the cars were worth very little and were relatively easy to fettle. So there was, you know, enormous enthusiasm. There weren't race schools and track days or anything like that. You just bought a car and got on with it. Yeah, exactly. Though the the idea of a vintage Bentley being affordable nowadays is just mind-blowing. Just, oh, Lord. I, I mean, OK, my first car was a uh, an Austin 7 Chummy, 1930, 20 pounds. What? Oh, That's... there were some bargains to be had, but, you know, turn the clock back. So would you say these are your earliest memories of cars or do you, do you go back even, even further? Like, was there a moment where you kind of remember looking out of the living room window and seeing something rumble by? Uh, no, I think it was uh, it was really to do with uh, the family cars because the Bentley was also the family car. I remember going to France on holiday uh, in the days when they used to winch the car on board the ship. We certainly didn't use a drive-on, drive-off, roll-on, roll-off. It was, uh, they had a crane and a big flat plate and they winched the cars onto a boat and took it across to Calais. That is, that's intense and super cool. I like that a lot. So with your, with your sort of your, your link with your father, the connection you have with motorsport and racing, is that why you started collecting cars? Like when you were able to, like, is that what kicked it off? Well, I think the thing I, I was rather keen to clear up is I never intended to be a car collector. I started driving with a vintage car. My dad felt, well, it was a fairly typical scenario, really. He probably thought it would be good for me to learn a bit about how cars really work and be capable of looking after it. And of course, what actually happened was he looked after the car and I went off <laughs> for the day and left him to it. Thanks, Dad. Uh, I'm, I'm off. Can you just make sure this works? That, that would be great. I mean, it's, it, it, it's kind of like the, the relationship you find now. A load of my friends are teaching sort of kids to drive and they're going, well, I, of course, I, I need to teach them how to drive a manual because otherwise, you know, they won't know how to drive a manual. And then the kids are like, yeah, but I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to need this. Off I go. So you never meant to start collecting cars, but you, you accidentally ended up? No, I'll tell you what actually happened was that, so I started with uh, with the chummy, sold that and bought a nippy, but my ambition was to go racing. It was only later what happened was that um, I could actually keep the cars that I raced and buy another one rather than having to sell one to buy the next. And so consequently, I ended up owning most of the cars that I raced. 
I never intended to have a collection of cards. I like that. So if you're going to, you know, you've, you've finished the the series or the competition you want to do in, in one car and then you decide you want to do something else, what's the criteria for moving from one to the other? Uh, basically something that looked more exciting or faster or better fun or more competitive, I suppose. That's really the thing. You start with the international wasn't really competitive, but, but I then got uh, involved with um, a lovely man called Derek Edwards, and he sort of took me under his wing. And I bought an Aston Martin Ulster, which I have to say I still have. And in fact, showing off a bit, I have three of them <laughs> because one can. And that's what I started racing with. And then you just sort of move. You decided more, more competitive. Next one, move on. Just so long as it, so long as it adds to the thrill. I mean, it's an interesting thing, and it's true actually of most car collectors. That there is no rhyme or reason to what they have. There are very few collectors who actually try and, like a stamp collector, uh, have a every version of a every Audi ever made or whatever. They tend to be a completely sort of random selection of things that they think are really nice or fun to drive or whatever. There was an American who said, I never met a man I didn't like. I never met a car I didn't think <laughs> I needed. Well, speaking of cars you, you need, or in, in this case, need to race by the sounds of things, like what is it about racing that, that gets you going? Is it the competitiveness? Is it the noise? Is it, you know, winning? It's, I, I think... Uh, like a number of things, it's not one thing, it's a bunch of things. I love the look of the cars, I like the sort of mechanical engineering of them, and then I like the precision of racing and the whole thing, and yeah, occasionally uh, of winning. It's a whole range of things that go with cars that are fun. How often do you get your hands dirty and, and go kind of elbow grease in uh, with your cars? How important do you feel it is to be involved with them when you're prepping them for a race or when you're just tinkering? Well, what I'd like to do, if if I was quite sure there wasn't a lie detector, I'd tell you I'd get my hands dirty all the time and race prep all my cars. Actually, what I discovered quite early on was it makes much better sense to get someone to do it properly, particularly when the cars start going faster and faster. What I do like is to have someone responsible looking after it. I, I do like messing around with cars, and I like the thing of mending something if it's broken. I mean, a London to Brighton runner, you know, if it stops halfway down the road, it's great, a great sense of satisfaction if you get it going again and get to Brighton. I like, put it like this, I'm a sucker for a snap-on toolbox. <laughs> so you, you, you like a good tinker. That said, L London to Brighton does sound like a bit of a, it's, it's, it's a glutton for punishment, that run, isn't it? Because you, you do get a lot of cars who go, well, this hasn't really been driven since 1916. It barely worked then. So let's try now. <laughs> yes. And it's slow going and it's in November and it's cold. I mean, that must have led to, in your experience with all these things, you must have had some, I suppose you could say hairy moments or exciting moments in some of them. Have you got any, any you, you, you can share with us? Well, starting with the 1901 Panard on the way to Brighton, we were overtaken just outside the pylons, the finishing place, by one of the wheels from our car. That was quite exciting because I didn't realise, I didn't actually realise it was our wheel until one of the passengers went, that wheel's ours. I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure all the wheels are supposed to stay on the car when you're driving it. I had a look in the instruction book and they... <laughs> You're quite right. Yeah. Oh, crikey. That, must, mm, that would have unsettled me somewhat. Did you just carry on? Just think, huh, 
Well, once the car didn't actually tip over, we managed to, well, in fact, we uh, we didn't, yeah, we did finish because the pylons is the finishing point, but we didn't bother to drive it through the town on three wheels. That would have been foolhardy. I mean, you would have gotten some looks. There would have been some pictures. Yeah, do you know what? I don't think, I've never seen a picture of, of us on three wheels. I, I think the problem is it's, it's on the main road and... Um, it was one of those things, there were no snappers in attendance. Maybe maybe there's one somewhere on a camera phone buried in a drawer somewhere. And when someone will do a, a, a clear out in years to come, they'll find it and go, Lucy, remember that car with three wheels? Never guess who that was, especially after after hearing this and, and, and listening to this. Uh, I, want, I want to talk about Goodwood and I want to talk about both the Festival of Speed and Revival. What do you make of the event? What's it like to be there kind of in the thick of it? Well, it's. I think most people would concede that the Goodwood events are the absolute best of the historic car movement or in festival. The modern car, it's the modern motor show brought up to, up to speed. And they're, they're rather different events. Of course, what's happened is that, let's take the festival first, things have changed radically. I mean, I was at the first festival and... Um, it was a few thousand people and a, a and a hill climb, whereas now it's hundreds of thousand people and um, perhaps more of a demo opportunity. Certainly, it's an opportunity to see almost any new car is is on show there, and there's some very I mean some fantastic entertainment in terms of the motorcycle riding through the house and Formula One cars donut. <laughs> What's great is there's always a driver's briefing where you're told absolutely no donuts, whereupon every Formula One car heads out, immediately starts doing donuts from almost before the start line. I mean, if, you, if you're told not to, that tends to be the one thing you actively want to do. Yes, that's true. And then what they do is they assemble three or four hundred people, possibly the worst behaved people you could ever hope to meet, and are determined to do what they're told not to do. I, I would do that. That sounds excellent. Uh, what about revival? Because that is, you know, I've I've been I've been lucky enough to go a few times, never never to compete there. You know, that's that's kind of mind blowing for me. But what's it like to be there? You're racing on you're you're on a historic circuit. You're kind of in and amongst it all. Uh, oh well, it's absolutely sensational. You know, and if you've got <laughs> if you're lucky enough to have the right car, you can find yourself paired up with Sterling Moss or. John Surtees, Damon Hill, Gerhard Berger. I loved Gerhard Berger. He, he drove the GTO uh, in the TT with me uh, some years ago now. But he said, oh, for sure, we're just having a bit of fun. And went out, immediately did a sort of lap time that would put him, if not on the front row, very close to it. And sort of came in and said, uh, and started looking at it as, uh, and asking about wing adjustments, which we were short of not having any wings. So hang on, he's, he, he went, oh, we're just here to have a good time and then started asking some seriously technical questions. Uh, Gerhard, it's definitely, he's there for a good time, but my God, can he drive when he puts his mind to it? I mean, I, if, I suppose if your idea of a good time is being amazing at driving, then yeah, he was very much. He, he fulfilled his brief. He was there for a very good time and smashed around into GTO. The other good conversation was the one I had with... Um, Martin Brundle, where Martin said, well, how do you want me to do this? Uh, how hard do you want me to press? And I said, well, Martin, I don't want the car coming back looking like that. And I pointed to the car, which was shiny and absolutely new. I said, I, 
I'm perfectly happy with a bit of battle damage. Oh, I like that. So, it would, you know, if, if you're the one providing the car, you believe it's there to be used rather than super shiny. You're there to put on a show. Yeah, absolutely. How much do you think a battle damaged car, a battle scarred car, how much do you think it adds It adds to them? Because there are the two camps of this must be perfect. And immediately after anything has happened to a car, it'll be put in a special bubble and, and restored. There's another camp, myself included, who thinks, you know, a knock here or there or, you know, evidence of a life adds to it. What do you think? Oh, I th- think so. I mean, it's a matter of degree. If you had a look at, let's turn to music for a brief moment. Which would you rather have, a brand new Fender Stratocaster or the one that Eric Clapton used on tour? I know which I'd go for. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I certainly think race cars, particularly, I mean, there's quite a dialogue that goes on a lot of the time about a restoration. What do you keep? What do you change? What's the history of the car? And did it have some specific uh, uh, modification, let's say, for a particular race? You sort of have to take a view, but I certainly think a race car should look like a race car. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd hope so. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm definitely glad we're on the same page of that. Um, talking of, of Goodwood and special drives there, you drove an auto union at Goodwood. I want to know everything about this because it's got a little bit more power than a contemporary rear-wheel drive R8. It was. It's from an era where going fast was important, but stopping was less of a fine art. I mean, it must have been magic. It was absolutely incredible. I mean, I couldn't believe it when they asked me if I'd like to drive the car. I, I think it was a sort of perfect match because I think Audi had a, a real issue about who they could ask to drive the car. What they needed was someone who sort of fitted somewhere between being one of their sort of own team of drivers or being a journalist. And so in order to stop their team of drivers or the journalists fighting each other, they found an elderly rock god and <laughs> popped him in the car. But to sit sit where Nuvolari had sat and to know as you sort of totter up the hill, probably never getting out of second or third gear, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, the car is it's sensational how powerful it is how how does the power delivery feel because you've got a massive engine behind you like what's the sensation like how did it sound did it how did it feel tell me everything it's it's particularly exciting in the wet this one thing i can tell you i've got a great picture of leaving the line on a particularly wet were, were there some angles by any chance uh, yes and you could get an angle on it or, well you could probably do it in reverse if you needed to I mean, the sense of being at the front, it's a bit like that. Well, not I've ever been strapped to a rocket, but that that feeling that there's this enormous thing behind you that's sort of pushing you ahead. Um, talking about the, the, the run, so the, the flint wall at Goodwood is especially scary, as is, well, mole comes off camber and can get a little bit hairy. How did you deal with that? And then is the flint wall any scarier when you're driving an auto union type D? No, I'd have to say that I think, in general, once you've driven the hill a few times, the flint wall is not really the problem that it might look like. (laughs) The problems occur in other places. There's been some one or two sensational sort of offs, haven't there? There have been a few, mostly mostly Molcombe, which is that off-camber thing. So how did you tackle that in the Type D? 
Well, the secrets of my success. <laughs> I'm just taking notes for the next time I'm there, that's all. Well, I'll tell you what you do. You <laughs> make sure you're in a low enough gear for it to sound good. And then you do a lot of that twirling of the wheel with your elbows out and put a very grim expression on your face. And it works really well. <laughs> and then you come arrive at the top and mop your brow and say, wow, and things like that. And the, the main thing, of course, that you have to remember is that these cars are incredibly precious. And actually, the very worst thing you can do at Goodwood is damage a, an important car. So you err on the side of caution and you just do a little bit of acting. So the, 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 the rules for engagement so far at Goodwood have been if it's your car, Martin, bring it back with battle damage. If it's someone else's car, shiny side up, not a scuff. Gotcha. It's far better to be humiliated because people say, oh, you weren't trying very hard than being humiliated by them saying, oh, well, you've destroyed that. Then. <laughs> if you've destroyed that, you, you ended up upside down. That was suboptimal. And now we've had to stop the whole show for at least three hours while we pick bits of hay out of <laughs> out of a vintage car. Yeah, I'm I'm so intensely jealous of the Auto Union. Was it an easy car to drive? Because some, sometimes you get into a classic and you think, "Hang on, this is this is quite easy." And then sometimes you get into them and think, "Oh, good lord, this is this is an absolute nightmare. Why does this gearbox not work?" Help. Uh, no, it's it's relatively easy because it's it's that really good German engineering where things work properly and gearboxes work properly, and the cars have been built and looked after very well. So in that respect, it's easy. And it's in the second respect, of course, there's so much power. I mean, you could do the whole thing in one gear if you wanted to. It'll pull from, I can't remember what, what the figures were, but uh, what I do know is that um, you could absolutely manage without doing lots and lots of gear changing. While you're in the hot seat, what did it sound like? Because from the outside, you can, you know, people hear the Doppler effect and it going past. And, you know, for someone who is so attuned to sound and, and all those, all, all that kind of space, that engine, what was it like? Uh, well, you wouldn't want to do it without earplugs. Stub exhausts are pretty mind-blowing, really. But when it, when it kicks off, it, it really does make a, a fantastic noise. I mean, the only other car that came close, really, was the V16 BRM, which was, uh, in comparison, was a, a sort of nightmare to, to run. Why so? Uh, well, because uh, the rev, you know, it didn't really come on to power until you were up to about seven or 8,000 revs. It was the sort of car where if there was going to be a problem, it would have it. I, yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from now. So it turns out German engineering, good. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> um, so I want to talk about you know you've you've driven an incredibly famous car you own several famous cars I want to talk about Steve McQueen's the Steve McQueen connection was that it must have been very late 70s I guess I was offered a car that was I think at the time it was in Paris or maybe it'd been brought over but it was in a lockup and it wasn't really a car so much as boxes with lots of bits in it the car was the, a 512s Ferrari and it had been left in this garage after it had been used in the Steve McQueen Le Mans film. And it was the car that was used for an accident. And um, unfortunately, that, the accident got a little worse than they intended. Let's put it like that. Did someone get a decimal point wrong? Well, actually, I think probably, I'm not sure if it was one of the cars that was radio controlled. I met one of the, uh, or the DP from the film, 
probably about 10 or 15 years ago who had pictures of this you know we now uh, run drones off our ipads but this thing was done on a uh, looked like a, a sort of radio station really and anyway the car was meant to have a small cockpit fire and ended up having a pretty brutal uh, all over fire uh, so we'd started on the car and uh, it was a lovely man in switzerland called herbie muller who's a driver and sort of part-time car dealer and herbie managed to find me virtually all the bits that were missing and um, the car eventually got finished and it's a wonderful thing i've got a great picture of steve mcqueen leaning against it during the filming so mm. a nice connection to have if you can have a picture of, of Steve McQueen leaning on your car, that's pretty special. That's that's not bad. And car also happens to have been in an amazing film that is loved all over the world. Yeah, I, th I think that sounds that sounds pretty great. <laughs> if we're going to talk about Le Mans, we can't not mention that you have competed in it more than once. I want to know what it's like to be in the hot seat there because you know it's it's the kind of race you can you know I've I've I've, I've watched it live i've watched it from from the circus i've watched it on the telly i have a sneaking suspicion that being there and in the hot seat while you're chuntering down Mulzanne is somewhat different from watching it on eurosport uh, yes i think i think we could agree on that one for sure i mean for me le mans was the ultimate goal i suppose i'd always thought that I, that was the most important race that and it, it's a really unusual race that you can or could then anyway race as an amateur against the professionals and now i think almost everyone there is if not professional they're sort of graded as being pretty close to whereas uh, in the late 70s early 80s there was there was more room for people making up the grid i absolutely loved every moment of it i mean i got there earlier than i expected because uh, what happened was that i was invited to drive with dorset racing who had been running this Lola. And in my mind, I was going to wait another three years, get some more experience. Never really driven them, what was then a modern race car. Uh, but then we're in the process of recording the wall. And that was taking place in France. And I was going to be out in France for a year or six or nine months with very little motorsport. And so I went, oh, all right, then <laughs> I'll, I'll have a go. So you're 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 in the middle of recording one of the most iconic albums of all time, and someone goes, "Do you fancy competing in the most famous motor race of all time?" That's a good year. Well, the yes, the, the significant thing was that I'd finished all the drum tracks, so <laughs> the, the, the rest of the band were, uh, you know, fine. Yeah, go off and do it. Yeah, why not? Go have fun. You've done your bit. You're good. We'll be fine. We'll do our bit, and then we'll see you afterwards for a beer. <laughs> that sort of thing. I mean, but, uh, but it was a sensational thing to do. It, it was uh, it was as everything I could have expected from it, and I'll never forget that whole sensation of uh, driving at night, driving at dusk. It's quite a special thing to be going down to Montsant, chuntering, as you say, <laughs> and something goes past it's jackie x in one of the porsches going past you at about 50 mile an hour quicker than you're doing and you think you're going fast and very memorable that thing of you'd come up sort of uh, past the pits and go up and you'd get you'd smell the fried onions from the fairground followed by the smell of the brakes as you hit the brakes going into the corner absolutely 
wonderful. And I was really, I realize now how lucky I was going with Dorset, who were really good amateur team and just um, very good at uh, not over pressurizing, not over pressurizing me to perform beyond my capabilities. Yeah, how, how much pressure is on you when you're in someone else's race car at, at Le Mans? I know some people who've really had a tough time doing it. You know, my friend Alan Decad, I think, Alan Decadenay, when he started uh, racing there, I think sometimes the teams could be pretty brutal to, to the drivers. So I want to bring things a little further further forward. What's your, what's your day-to-day now? What does Nick Mason drive around in to go to the shops? That's a very good question. Uh, it, very, it can be one of a selection. It's fine. <laughs> uh, usually something fairly practical. I've, there's a, nearly always a Audi in the yard. And still my favourite was, the, the, I think of all of them, was the sort of started me on, on the whole Audi trail, was the RS2. Because oh. um, VW were tour sponsors. We're talking 20, 25 years ago now. And um, part of the the deal was that we did a Pink Floyd Volkswagen Golf, and uh, it was, had some sort of design elements added to it. And we were really fortunate because I think VW thought that we just um, uh, would just go along with whatever they suggested. But uh, because of the sort of race car connections, I knew Peter Stevens, and Peter came up with some suggestions, and then came with us when VW made the presentation. Uh, and it was really good because they saw Peter and suddenly all the guys in the design studio were going, ah, Herr Professor, and he'd been their teacher at the Royal College. But the significant thing was that we were all meant to get one of these cars and we were doing, I don't know, there was a meeting at some, somewhere, somewhere along the line. And outside the the building was this blue RS2. And I saw that and I just said, what's that? Never seen anything like it before. And they explained about it. And I said, do you know what? Scrub the golf. I want one of those. If you have the option of an RS2, you always take the RS2. They're just mega. They're just intense. So so what's what Audi have you got on the drive now? At the moment, I've actually got an A8 sitting there, uh, which is a lovely, comfortable thing. But I'm really quite interested now in seeing what um, they're going to produce in terms of hybrids and electric cars and so on. Yeah, so what, what, what are your thoughts on, on EVs and, you know, in the future, self-driving or, or autonomous vehicles? Actually, I look forward to it. I, I love having a car on a track, but actually I think sort of general driving, the idea of driverless cars, is, it's going to be a lot safer and probably a lot more efficient in terms of routing with computers are choosing your route for you so do diy on circuit let the vehicle do do the job on the road i've spoken to a lot of people who firmly believe their next car they want it to drive them they want to kind of take a back seat almost so one sort of one final question for you what's in store for nick mason the drummer the the musician when are you when are you back on tour when are we hearing new things well i spent most of last year sort of uh, cancelling tours and putting in new dates and uh, we're now, I think we we are now looking, hopefully, uh, working to open in America at the beginning of next year. We'll use the end of this year to rehearse. This is with Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, my own band. But uh, it was going, I mean, I was loving it, I have to say. 
2019 when we were out on on the road with it. So we're looking at America in January and then coming back to the UK for the spring. Fantastic. That is so, so wonderful to hear. I will do my best to elbow in, get the front and uh, and and wave like a loon. Uh, Nick Mason, thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us and thank you for telling us everything there is to know about the auto union. My my jealousy knows literally no bounds. Frankly, I'm in love with that car and the noises it makes. But from what you said, I'm glad I'm never going to drive it because it sounds a little bit hairy. <laughs> Being a global legend in just one industry is incredibly rare, but Nick Mason has managed to make a ridiculous impact in two. Thank you so much, Nick, for everything you've done for music, for motoring, and for letting me probe you about driving that auto union. Well, you heard Nick saying he's particularly interested to see what Audi do next in terms of electric cars, and if you are too, you can go back and listen to our electrification episode. In fact, if you're only just joining the gang, the entire back catalogue of Behind the Rings is available for you to listen to whenever the mood takes you. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next ones. I'll catch you in a week's time. Thanks for listening.